0: Hello, and welcome to The Short Gun Sportsman, a podcast about handgun hunting, brought to you by Handgun Hunters International. My name is Ryan Hoover, and I'm your host. I believe handgun hunting is the most rewarding way to hunt, and it's something I want to share with as many people as I can. If you are at all interested in getting your own game meat, I want to challenge you to a way of hunting that is good for both your spirit and your body, so you can become the confident, self-reliant person you were meant to be. Well, today's episode is one I've been looking forward to for a long time. I got to interview Hamilton Bowen, who I will admit was one of my gun-making heroes when I was in the gunsmithing business. His book, The Custom Revolver, highly influenced my tastes, and I have pretty much worn out the binding. I've read my copy so many times. So I was just thrilled to be able to interview him. Fascinating gentleman, quite erudite, quite knowledgeable, just humble as they come, always willing to share his knowledge and as well, just such a gift to us as handgun hunters for all the neat things that he's come up with. If you like this podcast, please give us a five-star review and please write a nice review and please share this with your friends. The more we do that, the better the algorithm algorithm will be in our favor and that will help us spread the word so as a favor to me please do that i really appreciate all of you that listen to this now please enjoy my interview with hamilton bowen hamilton bowen thank you so much for being with me on the podcast today
1: well it's my pleasure
0: great I want to start by asking, what sparked your interest in revolvers specifically?
1: Well, a hundred people have asked me that, and I've never really come up with a really good answer for it. I, you know, I was born into in the fifties and sixties, and was much influenced by the cowboys and the, and the cowboy movies and that kind of thing. So I naturally took the guns as any little kid in East Tennessee would. Um, the, the transition into revolvers was pretty easy. I had a couple of autoloaders, and they were. Prone to throw my expensive brass all over the place, and um, I was too cheap to, to chase it, so I decided that it would be best to get guns that kept better track of their brass, and sort of gravitated to revolvers based on that alone, at the time anyway.
0: Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but you do you have a degree in history and English? Well,
1: it's sort of a composite degree. Yeah. Um it was at a small liberal arts college out in in California, so it's sort of a combo major, which mm-hmm. is typical of some of these schools. But yes, it is a degree in history and
0: English. Okay. Um you're a man after my own heart because I am a voracious reader and I love history. But why why would that educational background did you decide to become a custom gunmaker?
1: Well, that's another great question and another one I don't really have a good set pat answer for. My grandfather was a gifted um, furniture maker and finished carpenter, and I ended up ill at ease, I suppose, in academia and, and didn't really want to get into the professional world and um, after graduate school, I just said, "You know this this is not really my stick. I would rather do something with my hands." and um I'd had an abiding affection and, and fascination with guns since I was a little bitty kid. And it somewhere along the way dawned on me that, you know, you could go to a gunsmithing school and get a formal education in gun making and maybe pursue a career at that. So that's essentially what I did. I just um, turned my back on the academic world. I, I was no stellar student, mind you, but <laughs> nevertheless, I just was not interested in teaching or, or any professional trade that I could see. And this um, the, the gunsmithing and this rifle building or, or gun making generally appealed my sense of history and and mechanics and and art all balled up into one.
0: Yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned that because when when I was a gunsmith and people would ask me why I got into it, I would say that from an early age, I was fascinated by the way firearms combined art and engineering.
1: Oh, absolutely. That's as good a, a way to put it as I've ever heard. I mean, that's certainly had a big influence on me. Mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by them when I see a new gun even though I may not have any general interest in, in the action or the type of whatever it is. I'm always fascinated to see how it's worked, how it's made, how it's designed. Um, I think that that's a, a form of curiosity that's essential to this job.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, we we know of some of the old revolver gun cranks of the early 20th century, you know, R.F. Sedgley, uh, that, those ilk. But when you started, uh, well, when did you start Bowen Classic Arms? In the early 80s? Is that right?
1: Yeah, I think my first Federal firearms license came into my hands probably 1982 or 1983, okay. somewhere through there.
0: And what was the preponderance of revolver specialists at that time?
1: Well, all you have to do is look at the Brownells catalog, and you can see not many. (laughs) Um, In fact, that's a fascinating study in and of itself. Just if you want to follow a wing of the trade, just go to the Brownells catalogs, their archives, and read 40 years of catalogs. And you can see in 1980, 1985... Brownells may have had three revolver products, maybe a spring kit or a base pin or something, and a, probably a bunch of Ron Powers tools, mm-hmm. but they were more essential to the armory world than the, than the custom revolver trade. But we had no sights, no barrel blanks, no um, small parts of any kind. You were on your own. You had to make all of those parts.
0: Mm-hmm. So when you know when Elmer Keith wrote about his revolvers one through four and five or whatever, and in, in the, was it um, North America? was the NRA publication, right? Yes, American oh, Rifle. Right? Yeah, American Rifle. Thank you. I could, the name slipped my mind. In the 20s. And that was um, R.F. Sedgley. And who was the other gunsmith he was working with?
1: Um, there was a guy by the name of Houchins, a guy by the name of O'Meara yeah, And I, I'll admit, I'm a little... It's been a while since I read up on those those men and their their areas of expertise, but there were three or four of those guys that made material contribu- contributions to that gun.
0: So were would these but, guys typically... Like, would you say that they were more generalists, but they were so good at their job that they could apply it to the revolver world? Or they, were they revolver specialists?
1: Well, certainly in the case of Sedgley. Sedgley was an interesting guy. He came into the trade... Um, if memory serves me correctly from England he was I don't think he was an American citizen um, he worked a company in this country that made the little moral equivalent of Saturday night special revolvers for mm-hmm. us and he eventually took over the company and I'll have to admit the name of the company escapes me. But he was a, a gifted designer and builder and did all kinds of stuff. He made sporters based on 03 Springfields. He made flare guns for the military, hmm. I believe, in World War One and maybe World War Two. And he had a hand in designing some of the revolvers that this company sold, um, this pocket pistol company sold. So he had a hand in a lot of different areas. He was more, I think, a manufacturer than perhaps a, a a custom builder, but he was mm-hmm. a, he was a good hand, and in, in, in the sense that he had wide ranging interest. You could say you could certainly say he was a generalist.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, understood. So was that? I mean, I kind of feel like that. You know, whatever. The holy grail of custom revolvers, you know, for the longest time was the Keith number no. five. And then there seemed to be a dearth of custom revolver stuff for many decades. And then when you guys started turning cool things out in the 80s, it kind of fired back up again. Is that because the revolver was more seen as a tool during that time? I mean, we did have the 44 Mag come out in the 50s. So what was that about?
1: Well, that's a good question. I thought about that some. And you know, certainly handguns generally um, were tools until um, I think, especially after the war. I mean, there there was some resurgence in sport, or not resurgence, a an initial spurt of growth really came with Elmer Keith in the 20s and 30s. Mm-hmm. Um, people like um, Sedgley and um, King's Gun sights did a lot. To promote sport handgun use, although it was still oriented mostly towards target pistols, but Elmer mm-hmm. Keith in the, the 30s probably did more to lay the groundwork for the work that, that people like John Linebaugh and me and, and and you know some of the other guys in the trade did starting in mm-hmm. the 70s and 80s. I mm-hmm. don't know what happened between. I, I think after World War II, um, you know, people were just a little tired and, and of of the war and the privations that went with it that they didn't think much about that sort of thing. I know target competition was shooting was quite um, a big deal, but I don't think sport hunting really came along in earnest till in the early 60s, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of that had to do with publications, I think, writers, you know, like of course Keith and and, and some of the other guys of his ilk fell in with people like Peterson who published Guns and Ammo, and I think probably some of the magazines, Guns and Ammo, Shooting Times, and some of the others that started in the 60s and 70s, I think those, as much as anything, started to really drive what we see as modern sport pistol craft today. I mean, there were all kinds of old cranks and dudes that played around with, with their handguns and shooting at beer cans and deer and ground squirrels with whatever they had at hand all along, but I think to see the growth of the sport, sort of in parallel to, say, archery hunting, for instance, I think that probably didn't start until the '60s. But I can't; I've never really made a study of the sure, sure. Of, of the history of it, so I really, I'm not sure I can comment very intelligently. Well, a, on that.
0: no, no, no. I, I appreciate the perspective because it is it is a curiosity of mine that I I ask anybody who's been in the trade or in the industry for a while, because it seems like handgun hunting has had an ebb and a flow to it and that it it rises in popularity and then kind of decreases for a while and it'll come back and then it'll go down. And I'm, 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 I'm curious what that ebb and flow is what causes that ebb and flow. Uh, nobody, nobody really knows for sure, which makes sense, but uh, I'm always, I'm always curious on the perspective. So no, I appreciate that, that answer for sure.
1: Well, that that's a hard question to answer. I, I can tell you this much that, um, for those of us in my corner of the trade, and there are not really that many of us, unfortunately we've lost two or three really important guys yes. between John Gallagher and John Linebaugh in just the last you know two or three years here. But um, our work has been very, very steady since the late, I guess, late 80s anyway. Once we got established and had a little bit of a reputation to, to fall on, we, we've been busy as one arm paper hangers for 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I guess if there was an ebb and a flow in the in the um, hunting world, handgun hunting world, it, it missed us because we've always oh, had okay. a lot of work to do. And I don't know whether it's a matter of messaging or just what what gets out there in the way of media that would give you you know one impression or the other. I just I just don't know. But we've certainly been really really busy ever since I can remember.
0: Yeah, and it and I don't. This is just off the cuff from my my point. What I'm looking at is more larger industry where they started, you know, because in the late '90s you had the the discontinuation of some of the more popular hunting handguns, the XP100 and the uh, you know like the Lone Eagle, and there was just kind of a time where where the industry, I'm not talking about niche or custom guys like you guys, they they kind of stopped focusing their production on it but it makes sense to me that you know with your name and your quality of work because you know it would be you guys and i wouldn't i would doubt that freedom arms would say that they saw a real de- you know decline in their business so that that makes that make that kind of makes sense to me that you guys would be uh carrying on through that the other
1: thing that, that would give me hope that's been pretty steady is if you look for instance at a catalog from Ruger and Company, their their line of rifles has certainly changed. It's no longer that we, we've lost the really wonderful 77s and number ones and all the really neat Woodstock sporting mm-hmm. rifles they had for many, many years. But their handgun line has, has stayed amazingly steady and, and, and consistent in what it offers. And they've been selling Ruger Redhawks and Bisley's for, you know, 40 years now. And, right. and seemingly. Um, absent, you know, the economic travails that, that plague every industry, they have, have kept up and kept at it right along. And we've never really, I've never really seen a, a prolonged shortage of anything that wasn't related to some quirk in the economy or the labor market.
0: That's an excellent point. And that actually, that perspective gives me hope.
1: <laughs> well, me too. You know, I keep thinking, well, you know, we're going to run out of cowboys. We're going to run out of people that have a place to to play with these kind of guns and yet they still keep making them. So somebody's still playing with them. Yeah. So very, I'm much comforted by that. Very
0: true. Absolutely. You kind of just went over it, but I would like to focus more on in terms of technology material and available components. What are some of the major changes you've seen in what's available in the revolver market since you started BCA?
1: Well, thanks to Ron power, who really was a pioneer in, in the, arena of revolver parts of any kind. He got all the tools laid out for us early on, all kinds of maintenance repair parts like in-shake bushings and whatnot for double-action revolvers. Um, He got a lot of that started, and luckily, he's also made a lot of parts that are very, very useful to us, like his Bisley Spur Hammers for the Ruger single-actions and his two-piece grip frames, steel grip frames for for the Rugers. So we've had a lot of good support um, from people like Ron in terms of components. Belt Mountain makes great base pens. Um, sadly, David Clements, who supplied a lot of wonderful um, hammers and triggers to the trade, is retired now. I'm hoping somebody will eventually pick up his line of of products. But a lot of shops, and we're a good example of that, make a lot of our own stuff, make all our own sites, all our own base pins. Um, all the odd parts, like inflow bushings for single actions, um, you know, we probably make a hundred different parts. Mm-hmm. Of course, a lot of them are component parts to sights and things. But um, there hasn't been an overwhelming uh, um, run of parts to the trade in revolvers as there has been in, for instance, 1911s. You can probably buy every wrinkle and variation on the 1911 theme from somebody at some point, but. Um, it's not been the same in the handgun trade. It, it sort of waxes and wanes. You'll see, Brownell's catalog is a good indicator of what's out there at any given time. They've occasionally had custom cylinder blanks that people could buy, it, but we've never had a steady source of parts except our own. We just have to try to make everything ourselves just because there's not enough demand to, to market it, I don't think. Mm, mm-hmm. When it focuses on two or three people, half a dozen people, maybe a dozen builders at the most, you know, that market's pretty easy to satisfy. (laughs) It's not big enough and attractive enough for some significant manufacturer to get out there and just start making, you know, hundreds of generic cylinder blanks every year. Yeah, and I was actually. of you're kind of on your own.
0: (laughs) Right, right. So do you guys uh, manufacture, cylinder blanks has always been a, a curious one to me. Uh, I know that you offered them for a while, and then, from what I understand, uh, it was difficult to have a manufacturer hold the tolerances that you guys were expecting. Is well,
1: that... it's, it's it's not even so much as the, the, the problem of the tolerances. It's just that we're a, a very small mm-hmm. um, consumer of such products, yeah. and most machine shops want to sell you lots and lots yeah. of stuff. Mm-hmm. and. So it's hard to find small shops that are willing to work in small lots from small fry like us. So the big problem has been there's a certain amount of attrition in the machine tool job shop industry every year that you, mm. it, it's tough to find a shop that will survive long enough to, to get a good rapport with and produce parts year in and year out in small quantities. Understand. And that's been the biggest problem. So if we don't have something that we use here in-house, we have to try to find another machine shop to make it mm-hmm. and sometimes we can and sometimes we can't and if if I had to, to do one thing over differently in my life and in this trade, um, I probably would have made a concerted effort to either hire people or at least adapt the technology early on and manufacture as much of this stuff as as I could myself and mm-hmm. that's that's the one regret I have. We just never really and truly had charge of our own fate when it came to production i I was you know young and and smart and everything back 40 years ago and i thought well i'll just adopt the japanese just-in-time style of manufacturing well Mm -hmm. that was great worked great until it didn't and in the great economic collapse of 2006 or 8 or whenever the first one of those disasters occurred a lot of the machine shops that we had depended on just disappeared without a trace Mm. so we were left holding the bag and um Have had trouble ever since maintaining a good stock of essential parts, and no doubt.
0: Did you guys have to tool up to make some of those, or did you just let them fall?
1: Well, we make a lot of the stuff. We have made on and off our own cylinder blanks ever Mm -hmm. since I can remember. Just if if we had an order come in and we didn't have a blank sitting here from one of our vendors, and Mm -hmm. there was no likelihood of them getting the part to us in a reasonable amount of time, we'd just say, okay, let's go make one. Yeah. And of course, you know, it's not terribly profitable to right. make a cylinder, but right. we we back ourselves up um, as best we can. Uh, some parts, I, I can't afford to make a sight, mm-hmm. you know, a $1,000 rear sight's not real marketable, right. so we have to manufacture those in quantity. But things like cylinder blanks, if we come up short of, you know, a cylinder blank of some kind, as long as it's, I don't like making double action parts. Um, we've made many, many Red Hawk cylinders here, but I prefer to... I prefer to make sure that if I have a, a vendor available. That's the one part I really want them to make because they're very time-consuming and rather yeah. fussy to make. And we've made hundreds of them here in the shop, but that was all years ago, when the machinery and the builder were much younger.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can imagine that. Those are time-consuming parts. I assume all the machines you have are manual machines, or at least the bulk.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah that's a uh, that's definitely time-consuming.
1: The interesting thing is, a lot of the newer, younger guys coming into the trade have, have been very clever about adapting or adopting NC machinery, and mm-hmm. even even people that are in the custom trade, little solo practitioners, may have a small NC machining center and, and make you know, one or two pieces of bottom metal a month, or however often they need a the piece of bottom metal, they don't want to have to go out and mm-hmm. depend on someone else to supply it, so they. Have tooled up themselves and made up the fixtures, and they manufacture their own parts. And it's once you have all the tooling and fixturing in place, some of those parts are complicated enough that it doesn't really take that much more time to make. I mean, to you know a dozen at a time. It just per unit time and cost really aren't that different. When, you know, on such a small scale. So that's a great way to do it, and if I were starting over in the trade today, that's certainly one thing I would do.
0: Yeah, uh, the technology is just proceeding at such a rapid rate that I think, hopefully, you know, we'll see a meeting of you know fast prototype type mach- machine shops that are a- able to turn out qual- high quality, extreme tolerance parts in a, in in more reasonable quantities. I think that's probably not too far over the horizon, but. Yeah, it's like those those because I went to machining school back in 2006, and it, the technology back then was incredible. It's only increased exponentially, and as these younger oh, yeah, guys get way, into absolutely. it. So what, what are your favorite kind of design or improvements that you've made to revolvers? Like, what are some things that you like to hang your hat on that BCA has done over the years? I know, I mean, one that I'm a big fan of is that Sedgley pullout cylinder. But yes yes what are some of the ones that you you look back fondly on either as the the pride of having figured it out or just that was a that was a darn good idea and i'm glad we did that
1: well that was certainly one of them um i've seen has an original in hand i've never disassembled one but it's pretty easy to tell how they work and we set out about 20 years ago to make a few of them just to see if we could do it and we sort of figured out a somewhat different cylinder system. Ours had a retracting extractor rather than, than just a push and pull extractor as the mm-hmm. originals had. But that was the, the probably the one thing that I've always been most intrigued and happiest about. It there are other things like the Keith number no. 5 lever latches we you know we we don't make very many of them because they're very time consuming to do at least in the the style we like to do them in, but mm-hmm. I think the thing that I've enjoyed most is just the variety of barrel styles we've made all kinds of different single and double action barrels over the years, and some some cross dress and go either way and We've done some Damascus barrels, which I've really enjoyed doing, and they're they're very pretty barrels done on appropriate single action so there are, there are a lot of features that we've stolen from various old makers long gone or rifle makers we've you know, any, any idea that we thought would adapt well, the pistols we made free with it and put it to work,
0: and that that comes across in your work, that comes across in your writing, and uh, one thing I. I think that it'll be fair to classify you this way, but I am a huge Anglophile, and it seems to me that you are somewhat too, in that oh, God, yeah. yeah, I know, you know, I can I can you know reading through your website, reading through your book, reading through the, uh, the things and seeing your work, I can tell kind of the influence of the the British gun trade as far as. You know, you're at least you started it. I don't know if anybody else is doing it. Best grade, bespoke type uh, revolvers, and I mean, I, I just think that's really cool. What what other things from that have influenced? Ovate barrels is probably another one, right?
1: Well, yeah, the Ovate barrel is, just, in my opinion, the prettiest barrel there is, and the cool thing about it is it's, since the lower section is round, you know, at least 190 or 200 degrees is just you know, on a common axis, it adapts very well to single-action revolvers, mm-hmm. and if you contour the, the barrel rib width and height correctly, it'll fit most adjustable sight guns very well, and it's it's a very subtle elegant design, and, and certainly it's it's found nowhere else except on the old English single-shot rifles. I've never seen such barrels anywhere else. I mean, I've got a couple of Fraser rifles that have those barrels, mm. and um, certainly some of the other single-shot makers I'm sure did. And um, a lot of the, um, the big ex-military single-shots, a lot of Martini Henry sporters will, ha- will have them, and some of the other um, interesting single shot soapers and some of those things will have them as well. But it, to my thinking, it's the the prettiest um, of the of the barrels we put on revolvers.
0: I would agree. And but can you imagine taking the time to put an ovate barrel on a military gun?
1: <laughs> well, wow. you know that was very commonly done back then. And and if you look at the actions those guys had to work with, um, you know, Martini Henry isn't the prettiest thing in the world. But I've seen some very very elegant sporters, I'm aware of, a, of at least one Swinburne, which is a kind of a weird side lever martini, I've got a friend that's got one, um, made up by Holland & Holland, which is mm. as beautiful and elegant a single shot rifle as I've ever seen, mm-hmm. and it, if memory serves me correctly, has an 08 barrel, it's been years since I've shot the thing, but it was chambered for the 577 450 Martini Henry cartridge, and it's as beautiful and elegant a single shot rifle as I've ever seen.
0: So is there anything else from that trade that has influenced either your design of custom revolvers or the way that you have structured or run your business?
1: Well, that's a good question. Again, I'm not sure how to answer that. I'm sure there are little touches here and there. We've, we've pirated, it, you know, to apply to revolvers. I know the our heavy hunting single actions that we call the Nimrod pattern gun. That's, sort of a composite version of a, of a banded front sight express mm-hmm. style sight which we use not so much for aesthetic reasons perhaps but more for mechanical reasons because the band is integral to the barrel and works very well as a recoil shoulder for the ejector housing and yes. the sight base so those parts just don't fall off um, but other than that nothing springs to me right out of the top of my head but I, I know we've done some folding leaf sight fixed sight or, or you know Semi fixed express style rear sights on heavy revolvers before. I'm not wild about them because the, a lot of the times the springs aren't all that stiff and recoil mm-hmm. from rifles isn't, even heavy rifles, isn't quite as sharp and quick acceleration anywhere near what it is in a, in a 500 line ball, for instance. Mm-hmm. I've seen those sites sort of volunteer and lay down at times I wish they wouldn't so <laughs> we, we've tried a, a few of them and said well maybe not yeah. <laughs> it looks cool and everything right. but it's I'm not sure it's the solution to the problem
0: interesting so uh, you mentioned the Nimrod that to me is kind of the iconic Bowen classic arms gun is that would you say that's your most popular and if not would you, what what is your most popular design
1: well, in terms of raw numbers, it's certainly not just because it's a relatively time-consuming gun to mm-hmm. build, because all mm-hmm. the cylinders are line board and so forth. But in, in sheer numbers, I suspect the little mid-frame forty-four special conversions are the, the most to this day among the most popular. But of the of the five shotguns, I'd say at least fifty to seventy-five percent of them are, are based on that pattern, mm-hmm. and there's there's good reason for it. Button rifle barrels have a peculiarity to them that that a lot of people don't understand. I don't care how well they stress-relieve the barrels after the fact. Those barrels are under a certain amount of internal stress, and Mm -hmm. the best way to figure this out and see it is when we make um, an L-frame-style barrel or a a SP-101-style barrel for a Red Hawk. we have Mm -hmm. a 2-inch diameter blank. And then at the back end, we'll have a three-quarter inch shank that we thread to screw into the receiver. And before that barrel is profiled, if you stick a pin gauge, a border diameter pin gauge in the back and one in at the front, the one at the front will almost invariably be at least a thousandth, maybe a thousandth and a half or thousandths smaller than it will be in the, the three-quarter inch thin wall shank at the yeah. back. Mm-hmm. Just because the barrel, when all that hoop strength went away from the two inches of material mm-hmm. around it down to just you know an eighth inch or, or three three-sixteenth inch wall, it, it just got bigger. Mm-hmm. One of the th- things that I think, it's just been my seat of the pants observation that the Nimrods probably will shoot better than anything we do for exactly the same reason because the barrel is slightly choked at the muzzle, and if, if there was one thing I could do to make guns shoot better, better, if I could figure out how to put a choke at the front end <laughs> instead of the thread choke you typically get at the back end, I'd be tickled to death. And th- that's another innovation that you can you can thank the British rifle trade for, especially Alexander Henry, who was probably first and foremost a barrel maker before he really uh, became well-known in the sporting arms industry. But there are barrels known to, to have been made by his hand that, would taper literally two or three thousands from the breech end to the muzzle. And, you know, they just tend to shoot better than ordinary barrels do. So the, the, I think the Nimrod pattern barrel has a slight choke at the muzzle. I'm not sure how easy it would be to measure. It's, it's It wouldn't be very much. But if I had to pick a gun... That I thought I could build and put in a ransom rest would probably outshoot. It would be a 45 Colt M with that barrel on it.
0: Mm. Yeah, that 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 makes sense. And I mean, from a common sense standpoint, a choked barrel makes sense. That it would, uh, you know, everything tightens up, and and any any play or whatever that's going on as that bullet goes down the barrel makes sense that it would be more accurate. Well,
1: we've had one other really good example of that. We made a, a Damascus barrel on a um, a 475 many, many years ago, and it was soldered at the muzzle. I don't, you know, sleeve barrels are fine, set so with Loctite and Acrolast and all that, but I didn't like the gap at the muzzle so much, so we thought, well, we'll try to silver solder everything at the muzzle just to get a a better, m- more solid, homogenous joint that won't show once it's, it's polished. Mm-hmm. And this, this gun... I, For whatever the reason, it must have gotten hot enough by accident or not by the design. But I I think that the Damascus material must have shrunk relatively more than the steel did, the Mm. the, the, the 4140 barrel material, Mm -hmm. because this gun ended up with a choke that was at least a thousandth of an inch holy cow, this this thing was a holy terror. I mean, it, it shot as good as any revolver we've ever made, and I, I blame that choke at the muzzle for it. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, um, I suppose a really clever guy with a set of swages that knew how to administer them consistently to a muzzle could probably put a little bit of choke in a round barrel, but you don't want chokes anywhere else, And right. um, but if you could choke the, the muzzles just a little bit, they do sometimes show miraculous improvements in accuracy.
0: So, moving to Bowen Classic Arms clients, who are your typical clients? Are they hunters, shooters, collectors? I assume that, you know, I know from talking to people that a, a Bowen client is usually never one and done. But what kind of people do you find come to you the most for your work?
1: Well, all the above. We have folks that buy these guns and never shoot them, they're, they're just collectors, just gun hoarders, if you will. They they like pretty things, and, and we'll build guns and put fancy grips on them, and 10 years later, 20 years later, they'll call and says, Hey, um, I've lost the load sheet. I decided I wanted to shoot this thing. Could you send me a new sheet for the loading data? Well, okay. You're know you you're stunned that it's never been fired, but that happens a lot, which is kind of surprising because I would have assumed that a lot of our clients, and, and a lot of them are, are serious outdoorsmen and enthusiasts and hunters who shoot the crap out of these things I mm-hmm. We've had guys bring guns back in here ten years after the fact, and they look like they've been drugged around behind a truck on a log chain. Not that they've been abused, but you can see that they've been out there doing the Lord's work in the field. They have not been babied, They've not been misused or mishandled, but they, they blue and half worn off of them, and you know, they killed a Brazilian head of game in their lifetimes. and you know, great, I love to see that. Um, so it, it's we have clients of all stripes. We have people that are enthusiasts that shoot a lot. We have other guys who just collect, and other people who just you know appreciate that sort of stuff. And um, and and I'm sure you know there's some category in there I've missed. But it's <laughs> I I don't think we have any specific. Um, every customer, every client's different. They're all kinds.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That was that was my experience too. I I can't. There were several of my clients when I had my shop that. I would build them a gun, and then years later, they would see me and say, you know, I still haven't shot that gun. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Very common. uh, It's a a foreign concept to me. You are the author of a book called The Custom Revolver. I believe it was released in 2000 or 2001, and it is one of my favorite books. I've read it so much that the binding is starting to fall apart. Oh, Um,
1: yeah. Well... And Our boundary didn't do the greatest greatest work on that. That's for sure. I
0: don't know. It would have been competition between him and me, as as because I have I have wore that book out reading it, and I know that you know, between now and then there have been some updates to the revolver world that you weren't able to cover uh, in the book. You know, I'm specifically thinking of uh, the BFR has become much more popular since then and the X-frames were not out. And I don't, you know, some of those don't maybe lend themselves as well to the custom trade insofar as, you know, the touches you could put on them, but definitely to the calibers you can put in them. I know, I hope that you're sometime going to be working on a second edition. So don't give away anything you're not, you don't feel comfortable, but what what kinds Um, of things do you want to add and what, what kinds of things have sparked your interest that have come out since the book was published?
1: Well, I'd have to go get the manuscript (laughs) and look back through it, but it's, the the revision is done. It's, it's completely rewritten. Um, I think my editor has maybe a chapter left to edit. We're in the throes of doing the photography. I've got a, unfortunately, I've got a huge amount of gun building to do to to, to illustrate some of the newer developments that have come down the road in the last 20, 22 years. Mm. But no, we're we're very much in the hunt to get it back into, back into print. But there are there are quite a few things that have come down the road that are important, at least to my corner of the trade. We have we we have a section in the book on freedom arms revolvers that we didn't have before. Early on, I didn't really know what you could you know what to do with them. They were so perfect and so finely made right out of the box, except for grips and maybe the barrel profiles. There wasn't much you could do with them, at least not at first blush. So after a while, when they they brought out the model ninety seven the little medium frame gun, I thought wow, that's that's something I'd really like to play around with and so I got a couple of them, and it turns out that. If you're willing to take the time and, and energy to do it, there's a lot of interesting things you can do with them. So there'll be a significant section in two or three different guns in there that we've heavily worked over. So that's that's all completely new stuff. And of course we've got all the new Ruger developments. There's several big things. I mean, obviously the mid front flat tops and vaqueros are a huge development and mm-hmm. they've spawned a whole nother corner of the of the business for us. Those were just a marvelous new platform. We've done all kinds of things with those over the years. We've, we've paid a lot more attention to some of the imported guns, and I'm, I taught a class, speaking of revolver classes, at um, Montgomery Community College just a few weeks ago, and one of my students showed up with a, a new Uberti, and I was really, really impressed with how well the gun worked, how well it was fitted out and finished and put together. So it, it's um, given me some incentive to, to take more note of the import revolver. And, of course, sadly, U.S. patent firearms struck its and wandered off into the ether. So we've lost them. And they were, along with the, the new Rugers, probably the greatest source of new fodder for us to come down the road in mm. my memory. And we had, we've had we built some, over the years, wonderful guns on U.S. firearms products. And they're they're the... The, the guns that I miss the most now. I would I hated to see them go out of business. But there are enough of their guns out there still and we've used them for all kinds of fancy flat top targets and we build a, a lightweight style gun pretty regularly on them. Or at least we, we did. We've we've kind of cut back some on the the scope of the work here in the shop just because we're so overwhelmed and so mm-hmm. understaffed. Mm-hmm. So some of the, the the projects and the work that we would offer you know, three or four years ago or five years ago, we've just had to stop just to keep up. But there's quite a lot of information in there on the U.S. firearms, guns that's new. and I don't know that there's a whole lot new from Smith & Wesson. I have to admit that I entered into a love affair with the K-Frame Smith that didn't really exist 25 years ago. And there's quite a lot of new stuff about that particular gun. We've got some really interesting guns we'll we'll show there. And, And none of these are really revolutionary or radical. I mean, if you go into the Smith & Wesson factory and start picking parts out of the part bins, you can come up with stuff that they never thought of building. They're really fascinating guns. So a lot of the, of the K-frame Smiths will be just odd guns that we put together that they didn't. We built some 327 K frames, and I'm working on a Model 19 with a 8 and 3/8 inch barrel. It's nothing more than a reboard Model 53 barrel, huh. nothing revolutionary, nothing great, import or value. But you know, for a K-frame nut, they're just just a lot of
0: fun there's a picture on your website of of a dual cylinder 256 winchester 2520 oh yeah i that, remember that guy. still have it that is just oh man for i am an odd oddball caliber fan like most handgun owners and i love the k-frame as well i have a beautiful i i did a deal with helping some people out and out of the deal i got a model one of the 22s is 17 i believe it was Um, that had been worked over by i believe the smith and wesson factory because it has the target hammer and trigger stuff in it
1: sure sure you could buy them that way back in the day
0: and this was this was an older older gun and then a model 10-8 with the bull barrel which is just a joy to shoot i mean that's a is that a k frame the 10 or is that a j frame
1: Yes yep. yeah it's no, ten is yeah. the old m and p
0: yes, and I just love those that size i'm I'm with you on that that's just such a great size and and I can't wait to see what you do with that, especially in those those different calibers' because that's a fascinating
1: well uh, one of the things that we did probably twenty years ago, maybe twenty five years ago, we actually started making cylinder blanks extra long magnum length
0: hmm.
1: um blanks for the k just for the k frames, and that's where we that's how we've been able to do some of the really long cartridges, like the 25-20, the, the they will go only in one of the Smith & Wesson rare Model 53 22 long rifle cylinder. That's the only thing out there that mm. will contain it. Otherwise, the cartridge length is too long for a rechambered Model 17 or Model 18 mm. cylinder. You, you may or may not know, and not many people probably do or even care, but during the war, some ordnance department, in conjunction with Smith and Wesson, made a few 30 carbine in frames. Well, it just so happens that our K-frame Magnum cylinders will accommodate the 30 carbine. So I'm finishing up. Hopefully, I have shot here in the next few weeks. a sort of a M&P style service-looking revolver that shoots the 30 carbine in moon clips. You know, nothing terribly useful, but just silly enough to be a lot of fun.
0: Well, we nobody ever accused any of us of being useful with our guns, <laughs> you know, or, well, or there's wanting. There's
1: a lot of cool stuff out there right. that just has absolutely fun to play around with.
0: Yes, you're right. Okay, so wrapping up when you you, you know, obviously you've been in the trade for quite a number of years and i am all i'm a huge proponent of the trade one is that it's a great place for for young people to actually learn how to do something worthwhile and a lot of times it's something that will actually pay the bills and even though i spent a long i spent 15 years as a broke gunsmith and it wasn't getting rich i still was doing better than you know flipping burgers at mcdonald's so if someone is interested in getting into the trade, especially—I mean, the revolver trade especially—but the custom gun or the gunsmithing trade, what are some, what's some advice that you would give them on that path?
1: Well, that's everybody's situation is different, and it's hard to. It's hard to give advice that's applicable to you know, everybody at large. I was very, very lucky that I lived out in the country on an old farm, and parents were very tolerant and supportive of my idiotic activities as a kid. I mean, they didn't, they didn't ever try to dissuade me from being in the gun trade, and they were very supportive of the idea, even though my father was an upper class you an upper middle class professional man. He was, I suppose, had some aspirations that I would grow up and do something useful, but it just didn't work out for him. So <laughs> I had the advantage of being able to, to live and work on the old home place here. So in one sense of the word, I had an automatic subsidy. I didn't have to leave. They didn't run me off. Um, I had to pay my own way, but I was able to put a shop on the old home place where I still work. So I, got by pretty cheap when it came to infrastructure. I built the building I work in myself, which is no no recommendation to, to me as a carpenter, but um nevertheless, I had some advantages that a lot of people might not have and that's so you got to see what your economic situation looks like. If you have to go out and lease a building and rent a, a bay in a you know industrial park somewhere to set up a business you gotta figure out something early on that's gonna pay the rent every month mm-hmm. and still let you get the occasional, you know, can of hot dogs or something. So if I were starting out today as a you know, as a something and I wanted to grow up and be a, a gun maker, I would first thing I would do is I would at least go to one of the the trade schools. In fact I would be more prone to say, look, go to a technical Botec school and learn to run and manage N C equipment so that you will have the autonomy and the ability to manufacture a lot of your own parts, which will open up a huge horizon in your world that you wouldn't have otherwise. I mean, all kinds of things you can do in the trade. You can manufacture parts and do all kinds of things that aren't bench work that would at least maybe provide sources of income and subsidize your gun-making habit um, <laughs> I don't really build guns to have customers. I kind of have customers so I can build guns, and that's probably not a very good attitude. But um, in in one sense of the word, you've got to be willing to make some sacrifices and work a lot of long hours. But the the sad irony of the trade is that if you survey the the members of the Gunmakers Guild, for instance, I'm betting that not more than 25% of us at most went directly from... Undergrad school or Botech school into the trade, and probably fewer still ever went into work, for, went into business for themselves directly out of gunsmithing school. Off the top of my head, I can't think of anybody except maybe me. Mm. Um, and here again, I blame my happy accident of fate being born to the parents I was born to. I could get away with that, but you've got to come up with some way to put food on the table and. Most of the guys I know that who have gone on to relatively successful careers have done it as a second career. They've gone out into the real world and gotten a real job and made a real living for a while and then taken up gun making on the side where they could learn the craft at their own pace in the peace and quiet of their own shop in the evening after hours or on the weekends. If you hang out a shingle today, you know, one day after you graduate from gunsmithing school, Um, and try to make a living at it, you'll be broke and starved to death unless you're someone we've never seen before. (laughs) Um, Yeah, exactly. It's it's not an easy game to get into, and there's a certain amount of luck, a certain amount of willingness to work for nothing for a while, because when I started out in the trade, there was nobody to teach me what I did, and with a liberal arts background, I wasn't exactly a a, to learn a lot of this the hard way, either that or going to schools or... um, Getting friends in the trade that could help me with it, but it it's a lot of hard work. There's the theory that it takes ten thousand hours to get really good at something, and I believe it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I completely agree. And then and then there's the the tension in my mind of do you go into a generalist you know, a more general gunsmithing type shop where it might be easier to start getting in some of those more volume type revenue streams. But in the end, there may be a ceiling on where you can go. I always say, you know, when I was a general gunsmith, I felt like being, I felt kind of like I was a car mechanic, except one day someone would expect me to be an expert on a horse and buggy. And the next day, someone would expect me to be an expert on a F1 McLaren, you know,
1: Well, I admire the general gunsmith more than anybody in the trade. It's they have the hardest job there is. Yes, absolutely. They have to be fluent in dozens and dozens of basic guns and hundreds of their iterations, and it's it's difficult to learn every little trick necessary to to work on those things profitably. And usually, the stuff that's worth fixing doesn't break down in the first place. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, you're trying to save something that wouldn't be worth saving, except to anybody but the owner. Yes. So it it's it's a tough business to, to survive at and I don't I don't have any really great advice on that. Um, but I I think you've got to have a set of circumstances regardless of how you get into the trade. If if you can work for a, a big retail store that has a gunsmithing department and you have a a degree in gunsmithing from a recognized school that'll help a lot and that's a good place to learn the rudiments of the trade but i don't think it's it's very very difficult to just say okay i'm going to go out and be a custom pistol smith or a custom rifle maker and succeed at it as a standalone job I, i think you've got to i mean i did everything when i was starting i worked as a Teacher's helper. I hauled pulp wood. I gave blood plasma. I worked as a carpenter. I mean, for the first five or ten years, I was in the trade. You know, I was starving to death. But that. Every dime I made, I put into tools and machinery,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: and the time it took to teach myself how to do what I do because there was nobody out there that did it. Right back in those days, if you wanted a five shot revolver cylinder, you better figure out how to make one because mm-hmm. there wasn't anybody else out there going to do it for you. So it, it just how how your trade unfolds just depends on how you get in it, where you get in it, and and your background and where you're headed with it. And it's 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 no there's no good answer for no one good answer for everybody. It's it's everybody's situation is unique.
0: I I definitely appreciate that answer. That's kind of along the lines of my. I'm Not own. sure that helps much. No, no, no. <laughs> I don't think I
1: probably it, muddied the water more than anything. But no, dude, there's I, no good answer to it that yeah. I can see. You just got to be willing to make guns till the money runs out. That's like ar- farming.
0: Yes sir it is. Okay so last question and I'm this is something I'm curious about and if you uh, you know if you don't want to answer I'll cut it out no problem but it is when when you retire is Bowen classic arms retiring too?
1: Well that's hard to say. I hope not. Um I'm not sure what what will become of us. I don't plan on, you know, disappearing the company completely and luckily I've got a couple of young proteges that will hopefully be able to carry it on in in some form or other Um, there's an old saw that old gunsmiths never die they just start making and selling parts (laughs) so that that may well be what happens but it would be it would be difficult to you know not that I'm trying to beat my own drum here I I, I can't in my own shop replace me very well we have three guys in here working full time every one of which is nearly indispensable to the output of the shop we all have our Pretty narrow areas of expertise that we've honed to, you know, to a pretty fine point, and it w- it would be difficult for t- any two of us to take off and survive at it right now, um, just because of the nature of the work. It's it's pretty involved, and we we've, we've all got our specialties, and we just tend to stick to them now. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what will happen with the shop. It's 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 hard to say yet. I'd like to see it go on, and I hope it will, and I certainly intend to do my best to see that it does in some form or other
0: glad to hear that and i hope that just clear out of the blue an expert revolver smith or two knocks on your door pretty soon and helps you get caught up
1: (laughs) well if it if it weren't for the fact that taking several years to get them up to speed that'd be great (laughs) it's 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 a long slow process it's harder than it looks it's you know It's not rocket science, or I wouldn't be doing it. But there's still there's still a certain feel to it that you just have to do it and do a lot of it. You know, the ten thousand hours thing. Always do it.
0: Exactly right. Well. I think that's it Hamilton I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you when I had my shop you were the few times that you helped me out it was indispensable you've always been generous with your time and your knowledge you're obviously a great craftsman doing a great doing great work in the custom revolver field I am very appreciative of your time today thank you so much for being on the podcast
1: Well you're very kind I enjoyed it and hope we'll talk again sometime
0: Yes sir that sounds good to me
1: All right take care then uh,
0: Yes sir bye bye Wow. I could talk with him all day. That was just such a a great opportunity for me to get to do that. And I hope you enjoyed it as much as I do. I did. I just love hearing the history of his company and the fact that he basically taught himself how to do those things. And if you've ever seen a bow and gun, you know what level of craftsmanship it takes to create one of those. I hope that there will be people following in his footsteps and that we will see Bowen guns many years in the future, uh, carrying on the tradition that he started. And as a former gunsmith and a just revolver aficionado, I want to say thank you to him for all of the things that he's done, all the ideas he's given to the trade, all of the other shops that he has spawned through his work, his book. And I'm super excited that he's working on edition two for the classic book the custom revolver. If you haven't found a copy of it, you can still get an e-copy of it from his website, bowenclassicarms.com, but print copies are pretty hard to come by right now, and they do command a premium, but I highly recommend reading it if you you get a chance. Anyway, thank you for listening very much. Please don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and share this podcast with all your friends, and we'll see you on the next one. This podcast is produced by Handgun Hunters International. HHI is the only organization dedicated solely to supporting and growing the sport of handgun hunting. Membership gets you access to our great, well-moderated forum where friendly handgun hunters of all experience levels share stories and information from folks that have actual experience in our sport. We also host giveaways to our members of guns, gear, and ammo every month, and each prize is worth several times what membership costs. In addition to this podcast, we publish a free digital magazine, The Six-Gunner, which is written exclusively by HHI members. If you are a handgun hunter or support handgun hunting in any way, you need to be a member of HHI. Join today at handgunhuntersinternational.com. Again, if you have any questions on how to get started in handgun hunting, please reach out to me at ryan at handgunhuntersinternational.com. If you think we deserve it, please leave us a five-star review, and don't forget to follow Handgun Hunters International on social media at Handgun Hunters INT. God bless, and good hunting.